You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. My name is Dean. Thanks for gathering with your church this morning. If you're a guest, welcome. Really glad that you're here checking things out. Uh, we're in First and Second Second Thessalonians today, and I had a chance this weekend to go down to Panama City, uh, where almost 200 of our church members are down at the beach having our college beach retreat, and it was just so encouraging. And so they're still there now. They'll be back this afternoon. But it was just so encouraging and so life-giving uh, to see. 170 college students, and with adults and volunteers, about 200 people there together. Isn't that awesome? Is what God's doing for the next generation. Like it was just life-giving to see to see students who are serious about Jesus. And again, they're asking questions. They're trying to figure things out. They're curious. Of they they want to know the Lord more. They want to grow in their faith, live for Christ. And that's what our church is all about: is seeing all people in Tallahassee, but a big heart for the next generation uh, to know Jesus, to grow in Christ, to be on mission in our city, and to believe that God's love for them is better than any other love. This world could possibly offer. So let's pray together and we'll jump into First and Second Thessalonians. If you're new here, we're doing a different book of the Bible, sometimes two or three, every week for an entire year, an overview sermon that the whole story of the scriptures on our mind. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for your love for us. We're thankful to live in a great city like Tallahassee. And we ask you to be with all of our churches in our community as they proclaim the gospel today. Let what we say be true and for your glory and for our good because of knowing that true flourishing comes from knowing Jesus. We actually keep the enemy out of this city and out of this place. Please, please be with those in our church family who are sick. Please be with our healthcare workers. Lord, please allow us all to trust in you as the one who truly gives peace. It's in the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. So understand what's happening in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We first have to start in Acts chapter 17, in my opinion, uh, to get a grasp of what's happening here. And we see this, that after they pass through, and, and, and Acts is kind of the story of how the church grows and develops. After they pass through Amphipolis, and Apollonia, who got those names right? They came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As usual, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the scriptures. Some might call it proselytizing, but when you actually believe these things to be true, you wanna help people understand that God is exactly who he revealed himself to be, that Jesus actually is the Messiah, that he is the way, the truth, the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. We wanna reason with people to see and understand who Jesus is. He was explaining, verse three says, and proving it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. So he's preaching the gospel. The Jewish people were like, well, how can he be God? How can he be the Messiah if he died? He suffered. He died on a cross. We saw him. They mocked him. They beat him. Uh, They spit at him. But like, how can he be the one? They're saying, that's what he came to do. And then he proved himself to be the Messiah three days later by rising from the grave. They're reasoning from the scriptures, showing them how all the Old Testament that they believed in found its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. But some of them were persuaded, which is exciting, and joined Paul and Silas, who are some of the disciples here, including a large number of God-fearing Greeks, so come from a secular, very secular society into Christianity, and as well as a number of the leading women. You see people coming to faith, but the Jews, there were some who were an exception. They became jealous, and they brought together some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. If you watched the Tennessee Ole Miss game last night and saw people throwing things on the field for 20 minutes, that had nothing uh, on the mob happening uh, in Thessalonica. 
The gospel was being preached. The crowd became enraged. And there's chaos all over. They're attacking Jason's house. There's like vandalism happening. They searched them to bring them out to the public assembly. They were going to drag them out to most likely be stoned. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, listen to this claim. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here too. And Jason has welcomed them. What a claim. These men who have turned the world upside down. And this Jason guy, he's with them. He's received them. He says, you know what they're doing? They're acting contrary to Caesar's decrees. They're saying that there's another king, Jesus. Like, can you believe the nerve of these guys? The crowd and city officials who heard these things were upset. After taking a security bond from Jason and the others, they released them, escaping death. And as soon as it was night, the brothers and sisters sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Upon arrival, they went to the synagogue of the Jews. The people here were of more of noble character than those of Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the scriptures daily. What a contrast to see if these things were so. Consequently, many of them believe the scriptures produce life, including a number of prominent Greek women as well as men. When the Jews from Thessalonica found that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul at Berea, they came there too, agitating and upsetting the crowds. Then the brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul away to go to the coast. And he wasn't going there because it was spring break, but to escape for his life. But Silas and Timothy stayed on there while there was a mission. Paul had more work to do, but they were going to stay put and develop the church. Those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens. After receiving instructions for Silas and Timothy to come to him as quickly as possible, they departed. That's the context of this story. They go to this Greek secular city and proclaim the gospel. They reason with the scriptures, and chaos happens. I mean, a mob takes place. People don't want to hear this. It's offensive to them. It's called foolishness, the scriptures say, uh, to those who don't believe. It threatens their self-autonomy. It threatens their gods. A mob takes place, and now Paul, after he's escaped and gotten away, is writing a letter back to the Christians in Thessalonica to encourage them in their faith. And he begins by telling them this. In spite of severe persecution... It was very difficult for the believers left behind in Thessalonica. Their very lives, fired from their jobs, estranged from their families, beaten, some killed, put in prison for their faith. Despite that, he says, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. Why? Because they knew that Jesus was the one he claimed to be and therefore it was worth it. Because he is worth it. And as a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, the other Christians are seeing how they're handling this and their faith's being strengthened as a result. Maybe you yourself have seen Christians go through uh, major tragedies, you know, a terminal illness, a disaster in their family, how they've recovered and how they've kept their faith during the entire time, and it's inspired you. God uses these things to shape us, but also to, I guess you could say, encourage others is a good way to put it. He says, for the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything. Your lives are testimonies in themselves. For they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. And here's what conversion looks like in Christianity. How you turn to God from idols. From worship of this world to worship of God. To serve the living and true God. 
When you become a Christian, that's actually what happens. You're regenerate, your heart has changed, but you've turned from the worship of the things of this world, whether you realize you are doing it or not, to the worship of the actual, true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. You might say, wait, wait for Jesus from heaven. Didn't he already come? Christmas, Good Friday, Easter, walked on water, fed 5,000. Didn't he already come? He's pointing here towards the second coming that Jesus is actually going to return again and make all things new once and for all and allow his believers to have new bodies and new lives and heaven will be a reality on earth. So Paul in chapters one through three celebrates their faithfulness to the believers and points them to the second coming of Jesus. Like that's going to be what encourages them. That's going to be their hope. And he actually makes some sort of reference to the second coming in every chapter in 1 Thessalonians because he's being told this is not going to be forever is what he's telling them. This is temporary, that you're going to keep looking to God, that Christ is going to return, and he's going to save us from not just the wrath of sin and all that it deserves, but actually from the trials of this world as well. He says, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions. We're trying to encourage you. We're sending people. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance we were going to experience affliction. And as you know, it has happened. Guys, it's important to know that trials and suffering and affliction in the Christian life is promised. That God actually guarantees it. Doesn't mean we want it to happen. Doesn't mean we're going, God, please bring affliction. It's not that kind of posture. But it's a reality knowing we're in a broken world that's hostile towards the gospel. And suffering and persecution is actually going to come our way. He said, you're going to experience affliction. And as you know, guess what? I don't have to convince you of this. It has happened, he says. And then he prays for them. He prays in the middle of the letter here. He just stops it in his letter and says, here's my prayer for you with all you're dealing with. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Like We want to be back with you. Your church encouraged us. We love you. We're for you. We're on your team And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we do for you. Here in persecution, he's saying, hey, make sure you're loving each other. And make sure you're also loving even those who persecuted you. It sounds radical, but how radical is the love of Christ that he died for sinners, that he forgives those who have rebelled against him? I'm praying for you for your love, he's saying. And may he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God, that in this affliction, you're not going to fade away. And Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So we're in this together. May God continue to make himself known to you through your pain. And chapters four and five are now a call to grow. And notice that it is not that you have experienced affliction, so hunker down and just endure it. It's you're experiencing affliction, now grow in grace. Now become more like Jesus. Now be encouraged in your faith. And Paul calls them in the midst of all of this turmoil to grow. And my kind of first reaction is probably if things are going bad to kind of withdraw, right? Kind of just ride it through, sort of try to tough it out, try to endure it. That's not the posture God wants them to have towards their afflictions. Paul's writing, I want you to grow in this, that God's going to use this to keep making his love known to you and to encourage the believers. So he tells them this, additionally, after his prayer, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received instruction from us on how you should live and please God, and every Christian should want to know how to do that, 
as you are doing, he's encouraging them, do this even more. He's saying, keep, leaving, keep living for Jesus. He's worth it. He says, for you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. He's reminding them. Remember the letters we wrote to you, the conversations we had, the teachings. And then he tells them in verse three, something we all look for, whether we realize it or not. He says, for this is God's will. This is God's will. Who's ever wondered what's God's will for my life? Have you ever wondered that? Maybe you wondered that this week. In conversations with college students, with young adults, oftentimes it's, it's what is God's will for my life? I'm just trying to figure it out. Maybe you feel like you've gone through life and tried to live faithfully and you still aren't really sure what God's will is for your life and it discourages you sometimes. What's amazing is here, he gives it to us. He says, here's God's will. It's like a freebie right here. You don't gotta write 10, to read 10 books to figure out God's will. Like, here it is. He says, your sanctification. That God's will for your life is that you grow in becoming more like Jesus. Less like the world you turned away from and to the living God. That you be transformed by the renewing of your minds rather than being conformed to the patterns of this world. God's will for you is for you to become more like Christ. That that's what he's in the business of doing. And then he gives them a very tangible example. That you keep away from sexual immorality. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. He says, not the contrast with lustful passions, and this is important, like the Gentiles who don't know God. What he's saying here is, it is not God's will for people who are Christians to live like they're not Christians. And it's not a judgmental tone he's writing with here. He's trying to help them see the absurdity of what it looks like to be rescued from the world like Jesus, but still revert back to the patterns of this world. He said, God's will for you is your sanctification, it's your growth. And by the way, in our first century culture here in Thessalonica, here's what it's probably going to look like. You're not going to be growing if you're living in sexual immorality. Because that's what the Gentiles who don't know Jesus do. That's, that's their lifestyle. This means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner. In the context of sexual immorality. Because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses as we also previously told and warned you. I think that's actually, that verse should hopefully bring some comfort to people who have been sinned against in this area, who have been mistreated in this area, maybe abused in this area. He says the Lord is the avenger of all these offenses. That God is going to have the last word. There's an old Baptist preacher who used to say, there'll be payday someday. And that's kind of what's taking place here. He's saying, let's not sin against one another in this area, that it's, it's precious, it's vulnerable, it's, this is valuable. He says, verse seven, for God has not called us to impurity. Remember, his will is our sanctification. He says, but to live in holiness. And how does God define that? Does he want us all to be Amish? Is that what he's calling us to do? No. Is he some sort of prude? No. That he has defined sexual relations to be for married people. And he defines marriage as between a man and a woman who are husband and wife. It's one of the plainest, most basic things in all of scripture. You could call it Christianity 101, how this functions. That this is God's will for your life, your sanctification, not to live like those who don't know God. 
As those who do know God, he says, the expectation is that we live as if we've heard of him before, but not just heard of him, that we've been changed by God, that we've met Jesus, that he's changed our lives, that we have convictions that he really is the Messiah, that we're under his lordship, his authority. So when we struggle in these areas, the call is to return back to God. Romans 2 says that God's kindness leads us to repentance, that the love of God, that God's love is there, than any temporary love of this world should want to draw us back to God. So don't feel judgment when you read this. If you're a Christian and you're trying to figure this out and you're struggling through this, instead see a call to repentance, a call to turn from the world to the actual living God. And if you're not a Christian here trying to figure all this out, it's important to know that our God is a holy God and he does have a standard and he calls us to live by that. And we've all violated his standards in different ways in different areas, but thankfully, a God does not punish us as our sins deserve. He punished Jesus in our place. So you trust in Christ to be the one who takes on God's penalty for sin for you, you'll be forgiven. And if not, he tells us, we'll stand before God accountable for our actions. Because we didn't just make a mistake or messed up, we've actually sinned against our holy creator and that's a very big deal. Thankfully, God loves us and gives us a way to have our sins forgiven and atoned for. So please turn from the world and turn to Jesus. And he says, consequently, this is possibly, this ain't the same about me. Anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God. These are God's teachings. When the scriptures speak, God speaks, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So he says, God's will is your growth in holiness, and he links it strongly to sexual ethics. And I think it's fair to say that an area where Christians can struggle being most like the world is in the area of sexual ethics. When it comes to anything from what we affirm uh, to what we look at on our phones or our computer screens, uh, to the temptations that are out there, uh, to what many people's dating lives look like, like it's very easy to fall into that. So he's telling us and calling us here, hey, remember who you are is what he's saying, and strive to be more like Jesus. And this is an area where we're tempted to do that, and he's calling them to live a different life. It's easy to mask it as, oh, well, we're in love, you know, oh, it's just a temporary thing. Um, I've just been stressed out lately, so I've been on my laptop looking at things I shouldn't have, you know, I, I, like we're, we're gonna get married anyways, or, or love is love, or, or whatever it might be, but just know that God has a standard and an ethic that he's given us, and he calls his people to live by it, because his will is our sanctification, that we're more like Jesus than we are like those who don't know God. And then he tells them this, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, those who have died, so you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Do we grieve when someone dies? Of course we do. But we don't grieve like people without hope. And it's not a hope like, oh, I hope it snows this Christmas. It's not that kind of hope. I hope the fall weather actually stays for a little while. It's not that kind of hope. It's a certain actual hope, believing that God does fulfill his promises. We don't grieve like this. Like we actually know that Christ is gonna return, he's saying. I know you've lost people in Thessalonica through persecution, who've been killed from your faith. Like I know it's heavy. Yes, we grieve. We don't grieve as those without hope. For why? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, like if we believe in Easter, in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. Telling these struggling, persecuted people who are still living faithfully to persevere. Why? Because God is going to have the final word. He keeps his promises. We don't grieve or suffer like those who are without hope. Jesus will return again. It's the second coming that's going to be the foundation of their endurance. That Jesus actually will return again for his people. If we say this to you by a word from the Lord, 
We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not foresee those who have fallen asleep. So when Jesus returns, those who are alive still, uh, they're not going to get like priority over those who are dead. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the archangel's voice with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Always. Like always here actually means always, for eternity, that we will be with Jesus. You're not going to be in Thessalonica forever. Like it's temporary. But we will always be with God. Because therefore, he goes, here it is. Encourage one another with these words. Like this is actually it. Our faith is driven by this. This one promise that still remains from God. And if he's kept every single other promise throughout the scriptures about Christ and his people, why we for a moment think this promise won't come true as well? In chapter five, he continues to talk about what's called the day of the Lord. Now this whole idea of like the rapture and the left behind series, and there's just been so much taken liberty and just so much industry that's been driven by this idea. And just know that none of the end times conversation was ever meant to make people speculate or be nervous. Or assign, oh, it's this person, he's the antichrist, oh, the vaccine, oh, the... Every generation has their thing where they go, this is the sign of this, this is the sign of that, this means that this is coming. It was never designed to be anything like that. All of the stories of Jesus' return in the Bible are all designed to give Christians hope and perseverance. Hope and perseverance that God's going to keep his word. That's all it's designed to do. Not to freak us out, not to make us label, not to make us send email forwards and share articles on Facebook, but to give us hope that Jesus will return. So I believe that the second coming of Christ, the day the Lord described in 1 Thessalonians 4 and what's happening here are all the same thing. I personally do not believe they're separate encounters. I believe that when, the, I guess you'd call the rapture type thing happens and when Jesus returns the second coming, I believe that's one and the same, personal opinion. But about the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need, to need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, when sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The day of the Lord, like God's judgment is real. But Christians don't have to fear that or freak out about that. Because but you, brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. You know he's going to return. For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not sleep like the rest, and by sleep, it means let us not be unaware. But let us stay awake, be aware, be alert, and be self-controlled, living for God as we wait for Jesus. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. And here's what we know to be true. God did not appoint us to wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, and he brings us back every time, encourage one another. In other words, God's got this. It's all good. The world's chaotic. Hey, that's not a good thing. But what is a good thing is that God's not surprised by it, and God's got this. Encourage one another and build each other up as you are doing. Then he closes out the type of benediction and says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. God's the one who does the work in our lives. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body, your whole person 
be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. We're not always faithful. I know I'm not always faithful. God is always faithful. So guess what? He will do it. He will do it. He will carry out his promises and one day will reign forever and ever in the new heavens and new earth. And we get to 2 Thessalonians just for a few minutes and it's a shorter book and the, the problems he's addressed that they're dealing with in Thessalonica have gotten worse. Persecutions have intensified and the Christians are starting to get confused about the second coming. False teachers, people that are saying Jesus had already come, that had already been done, they're like, wait a second, did we miss out on this? What are we doing? Should we abandon our faith? Is this worth it? I mean, just kind of panic kind of thing setting in. And he opens in this chaos with calm, with a thanksgiving prayer to a religious minority facing oppression, and Paul is worried about them. They could give up their hope in Jesus because of all they're enduring. How easy is it when the tidal wave of life comes your way to tap out and give up on Jesus? He wants them to endure. He says, we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing. They're probably like, flourishing? We're on the struggle bus, man. He's like, no, the fact that you're enduring and living for Jesus in the middle of all this tells me you're flourishing. You might not feel like it, but God sees it that way. And the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Because in a persecuted people, the church is going to come closer together. The more hostile the world gets towards the gospel, guess what? The more Christians need to bond together. The local church becomes even more and more important in your life. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches. Like, you're the example for us, he's saying about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you'll be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering. Since it is a just for, since it's just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, again, God will have justice, and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. They're like, oh, relief's coming? All this stuff's finally gonna go away? He's like, well, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with his powerful angels. When he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This is temporary, but not temporary in the way our earthly minds think temporary. It might not go away until Jesus returns. He goes, endure through that. Be aware of that, prepare for that. And he says, look, God's going to have the final word. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. On that day, God, when he comes, be glorified by his saints and be marveled at by all those who have believed because our testimony among you was believed. I hear oftentimes like, well, if God's real, then why does he allow filling that terrible thing by a terrible person to happen? You know, why does he allow abuse to take place? Why does he allow people to you know, have years of getting away with crimes? Uh, how does he let oppression take place? Uh, if God is real, like how could he allow you know, people to be under racism for so long? You can just go, you can just go, you can list so many things. And the answer is that God is going to repay them for their sins. That justice will actually be carried out on these people if they do not repent and turn to God. So please know that we might be going, God, why aren't you dealing with this? And the answer is, he is, and he ultimately will. In view of this, we always pray for you, that our God will make you worthy of his calling, and by his power, fulfill your every desire to do good, and your work produced by faith. So the name of our Lord Jesus, this is the point of it all, 
will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a big takeaway as we kind of start to land the plane from these two books. God's people don't live on explanations. They live on promises. I like explanations. I prefer explanations. I would like an explanation for all the things that are going on, for all the things that are happening. I would like an explanation about why this person gets cancer. I would like an explanation on why there's so much hurt in the world. I would like an explanation for all these things. I would like an explanation about why God's people in third world and some closed countries are persecuted and killed for their faith. I would like an explanation for those things, but God's people don't live on explanations. We can desire them and even ask for them. I think that's all kosher. We live on promises. And the promise we live on now is that Jesus rose from the grave and that he's going to return again. The second coming, Jesus is going to return for the church, that God will judge all, all, those, all the godlessness, all the sin, but that God's people will be redeemed once and for all, and that heaven is a real place where real people go. It's not random things Christians say to help themselves feel better during difficult times. It is the actual certain hope and truth we cling to because God has promised it. So don't feel bad that you want explanations. I do as well. But we don't live on those. We live on promises. So what he's saying is that for these people in Thessalonica and for all of us, that suffering for Jesus is actually a way of participating in God's kingdom. Because ultimately we're people of the cross. And the way that the kingdom really was ushered in, a lot of that was on a cross, was through the death of Christ. And death will not last. We see that in the resurrection And we'll see that in the second coming, that Jesus will bring justice also on those who have oppressed him. So the unbelievers, those who mock God, who want nothing to do with God, throughout their lives they wanted nothing to do with Jesus, and in the end they'll get exactly what they wanted, which is eternity without Jesus, the ultimate tragedy. So Paul prays that God will use their suffering for great character change, that God's will is their sanctification, their growth, and also to encourage other believers around the world. And there's some clarity in this too that he wants in 2 Thessalonians, that someone has been spreading misinformation about the day of the Lord, how it happens, how it all goes down, been predicting dates, uh, others claiming that Jesus had already come back. Some are saying that Paul even said that himself, they're lying. So oftentimes when you're vulnerable, it's really easy to buy into false hopes. It's really easy to buy into false hopes. I think a lot of times that's why angry people or people that have just been through so much can kind of go into the cult of personality with a politician. You see that happen a lot. You see a lot of times right now, especially in some third world countries, the prosperity gospel is really spreading. The lie that God's will for every Christian is to be healthy and wealthy. That's really gaining a lot of steam in the third world right now. Why? Because vulnerable people and hurting people can easily be exposed to false teachings. He wants to tell them here to hold on to the truth they've been told. Hold on to it. The return of Jesus, again, and the end times conversation, they were never designed to inspire fear or even really much speculation, but rather hope and confidence to live the Christian life. 
And Paul even tells them that the kingdom of this world are going to continue to produce rulers who rebel against God. There's going to be an ultimate one called the Antichrist. This will be repeated over and over until it gets to him. But Christians don't need to be scared because God is faithful. The reality of Christ inspires our faithfulness. So he says this in chapter 2. We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation. Isn't that amazing? The grace of God. God has chosen you to know him and to receive his love through sanctification by the spirit and through belief in the truth. That's how all this happens. He called you to this through our gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. So you may attain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, as in, based on all these things I just told you, brothers and sisters, stand firm. Hold to the traditions you were taught, and by that, the truth of the scriptures he's saying. Whether by what we said, as in we were pastoring your church, or what we wrote. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us an eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. You see, Paul knows, right on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when Scripture speaks, God speaks, that what you hope for shapes what you live for. What you hope for shapes what you live for. If what you hope for are only the things of this world, guess what? You're going to live for the things of this world. If what you hope for is admiration by your peers to kind of keep up with the Joneses, to get the acclaims and the likes that you want, that's going to shape what you live for. Because what you live for is them. But when you actually hope certainly in the return of Christ, it's going to now shape the fact that you're going to live for Christ. Because you know that God keeps his promises and God keeps his word. Isn't it great news that the one who died and rose again has not left us here forever? He's going to return one day for his people, have vengeance over his enemies, and make all things new. We don't grieve as those who are without hope. Instead, we have a certain hope that now shapes who we are and what we live for, which is the glory and the greatness of the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for Jesus I'm thankful for a certain hope. Forgive me, I know I'm so prone to get drawn into false hopes and the lure of the things of this world. I know the things I talk about I, uh, up here, I need as much as anybody in this room. Lord, please continually remind me that Jesus actually is better because you are the one who keeps your promises and that Jesus actually is the Messiah, the one he claimed to be. So the one who died, who rose again, and will return. We look to you and you alone. Let us hope for you and that shape who we are and what we are and what we are in this life. Help us to follow Jesus, to follow your will by being sanctified and more like Christ. To not live like the Gentiles who don't know God. To encourage one another and endure anything that comes our way. Because you are the one who is worth it. In the name of Jesus we ask this. Amen. Before we close out and sing, we're going to take a time now to focus on Christ one more time together by taking something that's prescribed to the church, the Lord's Supper. Jesus himself prescribed this and told believers to do this and to take this. It's a, a time for us to reflect and remember the work of Christ on our behalf. If you didn't get your Lord's Supper packet, that would be a really good time to do that. They're in the very back on the table where you first walked in. 
And in these packets, we have a wafer, which represents the body of Christ, and we have juice, uh, which represents the blood of Christ. And this is a time for us just to lock in for a minute. All the things going on in life, all the things you, that, that you have to tend to when you walk out of this door, just take a moment to reflect on who Jesus is, on what he's done, and know that you're participating in an activity that Jesus has prescribed and that Christians have done together for centuries and centuries and centuries through local churches all around the world. God takes it seriously as well in the scriptures. We see the need to pray before we do it, to confess our sins, to examine our hearts, to make sure that we're in step with God, that our fellowship with God is good. Now we know that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's by grace we've been saved through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. And in the Lord's Supper, it's a celebration of that. So we turn from the world and turn to Christ during this time. So before I lead us in taking this, if everyone just take a moment, just bow your heads and pray. And I'll lead us through that. Take a moment just to thank God for who he is, for what he's done. Maybe if you're new to faith and new to Christianity, maybe you can just celebrate the reality that you are now aware of God's love in your life. And now you want to live for him. You want to turn from the world and turn to God. Take a chance to confess your sins to him. That's not scary for the Christian. We're told that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's a verse written to believers. Take a moment to do that. Thank God for who he is and to confess your sins to him. Now it's an opportunity to thank God for Jesus. Jesus is God, but we thank God that he sold the world that he gave his only son. That's what we remember. Also, we actually celebrate when we take the Lord's Supper. There's a reflection, there's a sense of, of having to really come to grips with what Jesus endured for us, but also there's a celebration of the fact that he has made us new through his death and resurrection. So if you'll go ahead and take your wafer. We're told in the scriptures that Jesus took the bread and he told the disciples, this is my body that will be given for you. And he told them to take and to eat, to remember the sacrifice of Christ. Let's take this together. Then Jesus took the cup, took the wine. We use grape juice here just so everybody can participate. And he took the wine. He said, this is my blood that will be shed for you. And he told all Christians for all times here on earth to take it and drink in remembrance of him. Let's do that together. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace. We are thankful for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That you didn't just come to this earth to teach us lessons and to perform miracles. You ultimately came to this church to die as a sacrifice for sinners. And here is the redeemed people of God. Lord, I ask that we'll be so convinced of your death and resurrection that we endure until the end knowing that the promise of God that Christ will return is certain and true. As we took the bread and took the juice this morning, we were reminded of the love of God in Jesus Christ. 
And we thank you for being the one who died in our place to forgive us of our sins and reconcile our relationship to God. We worship Christ this morning. That's in his name we pray. Amen.